What is a triple board? Why would anyone choose to get boarded in three different subjects? And what are they? And why would anyone follow the Cincinnati Bengals here in Salt Lake City, Utah? Today on Talking Missions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Thomas Conover, a triple board physician. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. We're very blessed today. We have uh, Dr. Conover uh, uh, here in my office today. So, Dr. Conover, um, you are a triple boarded physician. That's correct. What does that mean? Um, Well, I'm true. I suppose triple board could mean having three board certifications of any sort, but specifically what it, what we refer to as triple board is uh, folks who have trained in a program mm-hmm. that combines pediatrics and adult psychiatry and child psychiatry in one residency training program, making the, uh, the physician who trains that way board eligible to hold board certification in all three of those mm-hmm. uh, specialties. So what attracted you to that? Um, well, you know, it, when I went to med school at first, like many med students, I was really pretty open to just about anything I encountered. And as I went through medical school and and moved from my, um, I was doing it in a more traditional preclinical and clinical kind of setup in the nineties. And when I moved into my clinical years, you know, it could have been anything. Um, I did pediatrics and I found that I really, really loved working with kids. Um, but like many third years, I, I progressed to internal medicine and said, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, did did various other rotations and really enjoyed them all. Uh, but I did keep coming back to I really liked my pediatrics rotation and felt like, like that would be a passion and something I'd want to turn to. Um, I did adult psychiatry in my third year as well and um, enjoyed it and found that I kind of had a knack for um, – interacting with people who were in some of the crisis type situations that we were encountering on the inpatient adult unit Mm -hmm. and, and got good feedback from my attendings there saying, wow, you know, you really seem like this is something that you can do or could do. And, and wouldn't you think about it? And I did really enjoy it. Um, so as I went to my fourth year, I scheduled, of course, uh, electives in pediatrics because I knew I wanted to explore that further. And then also some in psychiatry. And I thought, well, I like kids, so why don't I try an elective in child psychiatry? And, and so those were my first two months of my fourth year. I did a, a pediatric sub-I, and then I went right from that into a child psychiatry inpatient sub-I. And that's when things got really um, intense because I, I really loved what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I trained at the university of Cincinnati, which happened to have a triple board training program, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't aware of its existence, even as a med student there, it just wasn't, it it was a program that had two residents in every year Mm -hmm. amongst a much larger psychiatry program and a much larger pediatrics program. And so I, I didn't even know, but one of my attendings on child psychiatry knew about it. And he said, well, you really love both of these. Um, you know, have you heard of this? And, um, you know, I, I met and talked with some of the residents who did training, uh, in the triple board program there and, um, you know, kind of learn more about it and Mm -hmm. started to really feel like I wanted to, to bridge, um, those two disciplines and to train in that way. And that's kind of the, in a nutshell, the path that I followed to, Mm -hmm. um, to, to triple board training. 
Awesome. And you came out here to University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Why'd you choose this program? Well, you know, when being, being from Ohio, mm-hmm. the Midwest, Cincinnati, Chile, all that mm-hmm. skyline, Chile. Yeah, no, I was uh, so so. It, it's worth noting that mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Cincinnati. I, I went so far as Indiana to get my undergraduate degree. So you know, I, I had really not uh, gone outside this the the circle of the the tri-state of Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, and um, but triple board training was offered in only a few. Uh, institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really takes a lot of coordination between programs and you have to have a really, um, e- there has to be a lot of passion and support for it in the places that it exists. Um, and it varies from year to year, but it, because some programs will, um, you know, some programs will start up new. And so I don't exactly have the numbers right now, but mm-hmm. it, you know, it's usually around nine or 10 programs. Yeah. It's a, it's a small program nationwide. Yeah, exactly. So when you, when you say to yourself as a med student, I'm going to go and, um, pursue triple board training, mm-hmm. you have to be open to moving around a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that I was pursuing it, there were programs in, uh, Cincinnati, uh, Indianapolis, Lexington, Kentucky. So I was actually kind of fortunate because there actually were three mm-hmm. real close to me. But then, then the rest were much more far flung: San Antonio, uh, Providence, Rhode Island at Brown, here at the University mm-hmm. of Utah. University of Utah's program was one of the original pilot programs when this uh, type of training was first conceived, and um, so you know I, I was interviewing at all of these places and had to keep a really open mind. And I think that that speaks to to people who have any kind of ambition in general mm-hmm. that that is something that's maybe a little bit more specialized or, or um, not done everywhere is that you really have to look at yourself and say, am I willing to go wherever it takes to do what I want to do? Um, and and so in, in – in my case, I was in a phase of my life, you know, I, I was single. I didn't have children. It was pretty easy for me to commit to that and look at all these different places because I was completely portable. Mm-hmm. I came to Utah and I really was skeptical that I would want to – it was the furthest flung program. All of the rest were east of the Mississippi. Um, I was trained in a more easterly institution I was like, well, okay, you know. What does that mean, easterly institution? I've always thought of medical training east of the Mississippi and west of the Mississippi as being just a little different, you know. Like the presence of white lab coats everywhere? uh, Yeah, you know, it kind of really threw me for a loop uh, that that things were less formal Mm -hmm. out here. You know, the stratification of... Um, and, and this may have certainly changed over the years. It, it, it had its good and bad aspects, I should say. But, the, you know, attendings were attendings and residents were residents. And if you were a PGY3 versus a PGY1, that was a, a level of stratification. And PGY stands for postgraduate year. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and, so PGY3 is a little bit further ahead in the residency training. Right, yeah. right. And so things – so it really in Cincinnati and other points, to me it seemed like things were – kind of more formal, more, um, you know, you'd always wear a tie, Mm -hmm. uh, to, to rounds and things like that, you know, Mm -hmm. just, just those little things that differed from what I saw when I moved out West where things were a little more egalitarian. I, I would visit, uh, you know, when I was visiting out here and kind of sizing it up, it was strange to me, you know, cause it was hard for me to tell who was the attending and who was the resident, you know, people were addressing each other by first names, things like that. So yeah, a lot more comfortable, informal. Yeah. 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 And, um, 
that wasn't necessarily what appealed to me. I came out here and really being that it was a small program, what was most important was the people I was meeting that I was going to be, um, the, the fellow residents I would be training with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I met the group of triple board trainees in Utah and, uh, really clicked with them. You know, I could just tell these, this is a group of people who, um, in terms of their, sense of mission for why they wanted to train that way, the way they supported each other, the way I was able to relate to them, even just things like hanging out with them a bit and, and, you know, getting their collective sense of humor, their, uh, their work ethic, their, uh, all of those things that I observed just really spoke to me. Yeah. I like what you said, Dr. Kano, because like when when you think about it Mm -hmm. and I, I try to emphasize this to uh, students who are applying to medical school or medical students applying to residency, you know, when you go out on the interview trail, it's, you know, they're going to learn about you, but it's also your opportunity to learn about them. And you just got to find the right fit for yourself. And Mm -hmm. that is part of the culture. Like, you know, all programs are created equal. Some are more equal than others. You got to find the right fit for you. And so if you go there, like you said, and you know, it's like, Oh, like, you know, I get along with these people. Mm -hmm. They, they, they seem to be very nice. They, you know, they, they are doing X, Y, and Z that, you know, that's what tracks people to certain programs. And, you know, when we say like, oh, the triple board program, it's actually the people within the program. And that's why we have interview days to kind of try and check that out. Yeah, for sure. And I think that personally, I would observe that when I was interviewing for residency, I think that was something I understood a lot better than I did when I was interviewing for medical school. Mm -hmm. I wished that I had understood that as well when I was interviewing for medical school. I had a, I had a great med school experience. Don't get me wrong. It all worked out. But when I was interviewing for medical school, I just felt much more like they're looking at me, you know, I'm on the spot here. I've got to prove myself. And, and I was so sort of nervous about that aspect of the interviewing process that I I don't think I appreciated as much how important it would be for me to look at them and and look at the the people within the the school and the program. I was lucky, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that it worked out. And I think um, when I went to interview for residency, though, I was more confident. I I, I knew more mm-hmm. through my medical school training about my own my own knowledge base, my own learning style, my own, um, personal philosophy about why I was doing what I was doing. And so, um, that, that really helped me. Yeah. To me, it's all about the educational experience. Mm-hmm. And again, you gotta find the right fit for yourself. And I think we're part of a culture where I, too many people put too much emphasis on like reputation or big names, mm-hmm. things like that. And it, if it's a good fit for you, run run with it. You know, if you're going mm-hmm. to a program, if you're interviewing a medical school, it's a really big name. That's great. But sometimes that's not what you might need. And that, that takes a lot of introspection, like you kind of talked about. So. Sure. And, and I mean, I experienced that at that time because certainly amongst those institutions I was going to, there were sort of bigger names and smaller ones and ones where the psychiatry program was more prestigious or the pediatric program was more prestigious, um, you know, and, and – I was, I think, able to really look at what was going to work best for me. Mm-hmm. And it really did. I mean, it, it, it proved to work out quite well. So biggest surprise about Utah? <laughs> biggest surprise about Utah? As someone f- moving here from Cincinnati. Let me think about that one. Uh, biggest surprise about Utah was, you know, that 
I think that it's more urban than you would think, okay. you know, life here, it's, it's really a, a city, mm-hmm. you know, Salt Lake city is the hub of cultural and spiritual and economic life in the state. And while, so you think of state parks and mountains and rural areas, and we have those in Utah, but when you live in Salt Lake city, you're really living kind of a city life mm-hmm. and, and you're not lacking for anything, mm-hmm. you know? Well, obviously you loved it enough that you stayed here because you mm-hmm. graduated residency many years ago. So. I did. I did. You know, and so, you know, I loved the institution that I worked for and I was happy to join its faculty. I, I had the opportunity and, and looked at uh, other places and even looked at going back to Cincinnati, which is the, the place of my birth. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and and uh, and and I still it spoke to the people, you know, it, when I think for someone who's a prospective trainee, you can get a sense of the entire hierarchy of, of folks who are in a place from a subset of them, you know? So if you've got residents who are happy with where they're at and you click with them, then they're probably happy with their attendings. And that means that there's some, some positive relationships there. And, and that's how it turned out for me, you know, that it, it was a good fit as a trainee and it remained so as I moved from being a trainee into being a faculty member. Um, so great discussion, Dr. Carver. Let's go back to the little beginning a little bit. Yeah, so, sure. Triple board, adult psychiatry, child psychiatry, and mm-hmm. pediatrics. So you graduated, and and do you take all the boards before you graduate, or how does that work out? Um, so so the way the training works out, you are board eligible for pediatrics before you're done with the program because you're done because you're done with your pediatric portion of your training before the five years that the training program. Uh, covers are up. I, I think we didn't mention that. So it's five years total for the training program. Um, and, uh, and so I was board eligible for pediatrics, uh, at the end of my fourth year. And I sat for the pediatric boards for the first time then, um, uh, you become board eligible for adult psychiatry, a little later, just because the total time you spend doing psychiatry, either adult or child, counts toward that. Mm-hmm. And so then that was the next one. Child psychiatry is is a subspecialty of adult psychiatry. Um, so I've always found the triple board moniker a little bit grandiose because, well, you know, every child like, and adolescent. It's like two and a half boards. It's double and a half boards. Right. Or, or, or you could say that every child and adolescent psychiatrist is double boarded, right? Mm. You know, um, so it's a subspecialty of psychiatry. And, and so you have to take the adult boards first. And, um, and, and so I was eligible to take that after finishing the entire five years and then how you progress through that just depends on how well you fare. Mm -hmm. Um, when I took those boards, there was still an oral board, uh, uh, process with the psychiatry boards and that's no longer the case. Um, so that, that extended things because you had to pass the written portion and then you could apply for the oral portion. You you probably did this as well, right? Yes. Yeah. I was one of the last years. Yeah. That that was fun. Right. So you pass one and then you can apply for the next one. As I tell everyone, when you decide to become a doctor, there's many, many tests. There's many, many years where you say the word boards that could mean in many different things. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so, um, you know, by the time I did that entire process, I was actually out of training for three years before I had all my boards. And, Mm. and, and I, I will add that that was not because of uh, my, my training program 
prepared me well and I was able to pass everything on the first time. And I was really proud of that. But just the whole process of taking three different boards took that long to get one in place and then move on to the next step and, and study for that and move on to the next step. And so do most individuals when they're triple boarded, mm-hmm. they have a, a, you know, can they go off and do adult psychiatry or pediatrics or child's or, or do they kind of combine them in their practice? I mean, what does that look like? In, in yeah. You, and you could do, you could do whatever you wanted, right? You're, you're a board certified, uh, clinician in, in each of those categories. Um, I can speak to my practice and I, I, I do inpatient child and adolescent psychiatry. So I work with kids who are in severe crisis or who have severe mental illness in a hospital setting. And to me, what triple board has helped with, with that, um, is with a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, oftentimes there's medical comorbidities or there's just medical problems that come up while they're under, uh, my care in the hospital. And so it makes me feel very confident that I can manage those problems. If they're simple ones that come up while they're under my care, I can manage them independently. Like diabetes. Sure. Yeah. yeah I feel comfortable managing a, so someone a, a has patient. severe depression as well as diabetes. Yeah. And so I feel very comfortable with that. And so in an inpatient setting, that's very helpful to me. Um, many people I have trained with have pursued consultation liaison, uh, psychiatry in a pediatric hospital setting. So what's that? What's that? So consultation liaison psychiatry is, is, uh, psychiatry that's practiced in a general hospital setting. And, uh, when, uh, when a patient who's there in the general hospital for a medical concern has, behavioral or psychiatric concerns and needs consultation or concurrent care, the consultation liaison or CL psychiatrist Mm -hmm. provides that consultation or concurrent care. And um, folks who do consultation liaison psychiatry in either adult or child settings, um, you know, the more you know about medicine, and in this case, pediatric medicine, the better, right? Because that's what you're amongst. You're amongst kids with diabetes, kids with cancer, kids with uh, complex congenital syndromes who are having behavioral problems. And so those folks who train triple board and pursue that, they're just able to really understand those issues. I also think when you train uh, with people, you you think like the people you train with too. Mm -hmm. And so I think just even culturally, it's helpful because you've, you've done pediatrics, you've been a pediatric resident, you know, you've been a pediatric intern when you do triple board, you've been a pediatric senior resident, you've done subspecialty rotations, you've done, I did five years of uh, primary care continuity clinic. And so I really over those five years felt that I learned to think like and communicate like a pediatrician. And so, um, you know, in a CL role, then that's really helpful. You, 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 you're maybe not too caught up in the esoteric world of your psychiatry training or background. So it sounds like the vast majority of people who do triple board end up working more with a pediatric population. Very few people go uh, off. For sure. Yeah. I, I don't think you, you know, just like my own personal story, you know, you don't go triple board if you don't love working with kids. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it was that prospect when I looked at um, if you go and train uh, for a traditional child and adolescent psychiatry um, residency, which which you did. Yes. You know, um, you know, well, you do three or four years of adult psychiatry before doing a child and adolescent residency that's two years. Um, and to me, so for me personally, even just structurally, the fact that I was going to be working with kids extensively right from the beginning, because I knew 
I wanted to work with kids was part of the appeal. Mm -hmm. But if I hadn't loved pediatric medicine and wanted to also train more in that, then it still wouldn't have been the right thing to do. So you talked about being an inpatient child adolescent psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. What is that and how is that different? I mean, I mean, what, 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 I mean, what is that? I mean, well, you know, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, of course, is a psychiatrist, you know, mm -hmm. someone who specialized in mental health and behavioral health, um, who works primarily with children and adolescents. And, and, and pretty much in this day and age, y you would be board certified or board eligible through your training for that. There's not many people who go out and just hang up a shingle saying, I'm going to work with children and adolescents who are, uh, who are having mental illness without the appropriate training. Mm -hmm. um, an inpatient child and adolescent psychiatrist, I think, um, mirrors the general trend we see that hospital stays are shorter mm -hmm. across medicine. Um, it, oftentimes, we're dealing with more complex illness, it seems, these days, or at least more complex diagnostic and treatment options mm -hmm. than people once did. You know, I think if you go back 50 years, the much more common thing was for anybody in any practice to have both an outpatient and an inpatient practice, mm -hmm. right? And they would go and see their inpatients in the hospital and, and then move on to their office and be the person, the one person who did it all. Um, but uh, increasingly in modern medicine, the, the complexity of diagnostic and treatment options, the shortening of hospital stays, both in general medical and, and behavioral health settings, means that it's probably it's, – it's increasingly split between people who mostly do outpatient and mostly do inpatient. Mm -hmm. And that's even becoming true in behavioral health or psychiatry. And so um, at, at the University of Utah, at the University Neuropsychiatric Institute where I work, um, about uh, 12 – or 13 years ago, a decision was made to really, really make that division much as it had been made in internal medicine or in uh, pediatric settings. And we would have a group of inpatient specific doctors who did mostly, if not all of their clinical work on the inpatient unit so that they could be present um, and focused in that setting available mm -hmm in that setting uh, throughout the day. Because that, that, that is certainly one drawback if you're rounding on patients in the morning in the hospital and then off at your office, no matter what specialty you're in. If something comes up with that patient during the day, you're dealing with it by the phone. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so it sounds like... So we, we, we specialized to say we're going to do this all day, every day. When you're inpatient hospice, you're mm -hmm. there in the hospital all day. Mm -hmm. And you do not have an outpatient clinic, meaning if someone wanted just to bring their child in for you to see them in an outpatient clinic, you don't have that. No, I don't. Okay. Right. I, and so I, I get all of my referrals through our clinical assessment center. So if somebody, if somebody either walks into our hospital or is in an outlying ER and being assessed and, and needs psychiatric admission, that's how people come to see me. So what kind of things, like what leads to a, a teenager or a child to be admitted to a psychiatric facility? Well, it can be a lot of different things, but they usually boil down to a couple of general situations. Um, one of those being that the, the child or teen is in imminent risk of hurting him or herself. Okay. Uh, another being that the child or adolescent is in imminent risk of hurting somebody else. 
uh, or a third category, which is that, that, that maybe they are so ill at the moment that they just can't take care of basic functions and that's compromising their safety. So something like the, the, a person whose depression is so severe that he or she isn't eating properly and so is malnourished or a person who is, um, uh, having psychosis and that's leading them to, uh, you know, not pay enough attention to the reality of their surroundings that they're getting into dangerous situations like mm-hmm. walking in front of traffic or, or, uh, or putting themselves in danger in other ways. Okay. Um, a question I get a lot. I'm just curious how you feel about mm-hmm. it, is like, what are the ages? I mean, like, like how, how young do pa- our patients appear on the child unit? Uh, I personally have seen patients as young as four years old. That's relatively uncommon. I mean, the next question is what would, I mean, a four or five or six year old, what would, what would they do that would get them hospitalized? Um, you know, usually when, when, when a children, when a child is that young and is fulfilling those criteria of, of either being dangerous to someone else or dangerous to themselves. So like aggression or running out they, in traffic. They, they might be yeah. right. A yeah. lot of times it's, it's that their behavior is out of control and, and they, they can't really kind of be contained, mm-hmm. you know, that, that a five-year-old is, um, leaving their room and leaving the house at night, trying to run away or something like that. But, um, you know, five-year-old, uh, a typical five-year-old weighs probably on the order of 45 to 50 pounds. So uh, also if, if a five-year-old is sufficiently agitated, uh, they can hurt people, you mm-hmm. know? And so it, it, including teachers, teachers, parents, uh, other caregivers, babysitters, uh-huh. yeah. and, and when kids are that young under my care, usually there is also uh, a fair degree of, um, psychosocial complexity. And when I say psychosocial complexity, I mean that there's other situations contributing. Um, you know, we talk about diagnosable mental illness, like major depressive disorder, let's say, um, and an adult who needs hospitalization might just have severe major depressive disorder with no comorbidities, but he or she is so depressed and perhaps feeling suicidal that it's putting him or her at risk. Uh, a child, uh, that's five can have major depressive disorder, but it would be unlikely that that it by itself, that single diagnosis would put them in a situation where they needed to be admitted. Mm-hmm. So psychosocial, uh, problems that might contribute to it might be things like, uh, a history of, or ongoing neglect and abuse, mm-hmm. uh, uh, medical issues that are comorbid to the, the psychiatric issues. Um, uh, Poverty, uh, lack of access to healthcare resources. Child just changed schools, just moved here from out of state. Sure, yeah. lots of things. Instability in their environment mm-hmm. or the or the caretaking environment outside the hospital. So, um, the majority of our patients aren't that young, you know. So, if, I think that it's interesting to talk about those cases. But I would say the majority of our patients range from about eight to eighteen. Yeah, a little bit older. Yeah. So. Um, like we're almost out of time, Dr. Connor, but a few more questions. Sure thing. So there is a perception, you know, a child comes in, you know, a 12 year old, um, do like, do you start medications right away? I mean, I mean, how do you determine if they need medications or not? Do you need to get the parents permission for that? Uh, the, well, a couple of good questions there. Uh, and, and one thing I think that a specialist can do uh, is, is to be able to really discern when medicines are going to be of help and when they're not. And the usual course of events here is that we'll take a little time to 
talk to the child, talk to the family, talk to outpatient caregivers if there are any like, uh, you know, primary care physicians or uh, therapists, the like, and get a really thorough evaluation. Uh, now, sometimes a child might come in and they have really severe symptoms like psychosis or agitation, and it's just apparent from our expertise and experience that medicines need to be started right away. But more often than not, the environment here that we design and 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 treat kids in is enough that we can get enough safety and enough calm that we can do a more measured evaluation before we add medicines. We always in obtain informed consent from parents or guardians before we start medications. Um, that that's fundamental in medicine, right? You know, in any specialty, you've got it to be it psychiatric medications versus just oh sure antibiotics. You know, right, yeah. right. You need the, you need to know what the reason is that the medicine's being prescribed. You need to know what the possible uh, side effects or adverse effects are. And so, I really pride myself and our group of physicians that I work with here on doing a really good job with that. Um, it, with um, with psychiatric medications, uh, you know, it, it takes really good judgment to to know you know, what, what the right medication is and, and how much to give and how long and, and, and what other treatments to provide. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it sounds like as part of the assessment and then diagnostic clarification, mm -hmm. you, you watch the kids, you observe them, mm -hmm. you get collateral information from the parents, from the school before, I mean, I think it's before making that decision to start medication, which can be a big decision to make. So, sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and I think we're, we're appropriately humble you know, in knowing that our medications can be an important part of treatment, but they rarely are the sole means by which a child with these kind of problems is going to get better. And so we really want to take a good look at what's going on and, and, and get good uh, therapy or other supports in place. We, we um, interact extensively with um, schools, uh, other outside agencies like the Department of Child and Family Services, uh, uh, police or, or courts, if necessary, if kids are involved with the legal system, to really try to create a, uh, a situation where we say, what are the various supports that can help this child do better? And it's not all about a pill by any stretch of the imagination. Great. Well, Dr. Conover, we're almost out of time, mm -hmm. but I need to ask you some more questions about football. Okay. So... When you came out here from Cincinnati, you also brought your fandom of the Cincinnati Bengals, correct? I did. So to all our listeners out there, how how does one, when you move to a geographical area where there's not a natural built-in fan base, how mm -hmm. do you maintain like that love? Because I know you love the Bengals. Well, it, it helped that I, that I met and married a woman who was a bigger football fan than I was. So love is the key. So love is the key. <laughs> and, and, but I was a, she loved me enough that she was willing to give up her fandom of the Dallas Cowboys Ooh. and move over to the Bengals. And mind you, this was 2002, you know, and so this was the, this was the area of the Bungles. And we have not really, really gotten out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been to the playoffs three years in a row, but we've, we've been one and done each year. And I'm not sure if the Red Rocket has what it takes to lead us past. That's Andy Dalton, the quarterback. Yes. yes. For, for Mountain West fans or – well, TCU is not in the Mountain West anymore, are they? No. no. So are you – you know, you have children. I are do. You gonna, are you raising your children to be Bengals fans? Why or why not? Um, 
Well, it's, it's a family tradition and it's a piece of my heritage. You know, the rest of my extended family is in Cincinnati. Uh, and so I am trying to raise my children to be, uh, Bengals fans. Yes. And you, but, but you know what that means? Uh, the bungles, like you just talked about. No, I, 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 you know, you have to accept the good and the bad in in your heritage, right? Well, I think that's beautiful because you know you get to kind of teach them about like life, and you know, sports is kind of an analogy for life. It, it is indeed, and and my oldest son is seven, and he he's decided to make his own analogies and metaphors, uh, and he likes winners. And so he's declaring himself uh, a Patriots and Steelers fan. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Now I am pointing out to him that as of the time that we're recording this podcast, the Bengals do have a one and a half game lead in the AFC North over everybody else. And so if he likes winners, he really should stick with with his heritage. When you, you use know, that argument it? with him, what does he say? It doesn't seem to hold water. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't seem to hold water. It just drifts away. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He, he, I think he points to whether or not we've got the rings to back it up and the Pats and the Steelers have them. And the Bengals do not. Have you gone to a game? Uh, with my son? Mm-hmm. No, not yet. We tend to visit back home in the summer when we can do lots of fun things outside. And Cincinnati in the winter is kind of dismal, okay. except for the football games. Um, but you've gone Those before, are kind of dismal, too. By yourself or with your Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, yes. All right. Yeah. Last comment on the podcast, Dr. Conover. What's a really good a Bengals stadium story? A good Bengals stadium story? Yeah. Well, well, if you work with kids, don't bring your kids to the game. The, the, <laughs> the state of affairs in, in, in the NFL these days, people really, really want to go and drink a lot of beer. And, 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 so it's not and, a family-friendly environment. And, no, no. You know what? Like, comparing NFL games that I've been to and, uh, and, and college games, okay. I'd say if you want to take your kids to watch football – Go to co- go to college games. So they're more. It's more family friendly. More I, friendly. It's a lot more family friendly. Is I, this the University of Utah? Or is yeah, here at the okay. University of Utah, okay. you go in the stands and people people are people are you know they're into it and mm-hmm. they're vociferous. But so if someone starts swearing, people say, "Hey, you know, like their kids they, around." There's yeah. a pretty yeah. There's yeah. a there's there's a whereas there's a back in Cincinnati. You know, the kids joining on the swearing or something like that. Something like that, okay. yeah. So right. it's, yeah, I would definitely go for the uh, for the Pac-12 if I was uh, taking my kids to a game, and that's what I have done to date, so. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Conover, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Chan. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.